You know, kids, I'm sure we'd all like to remember actor Dirk Richter for his portrayal of Radioactive Man and not the sordid details of his final years. So let's keep the questions tasteful, okay? Now, how about a big welcome for Buddy Fallout Boy Hodges? Any questions? When Radioactive Man got injected with shrinking serum in issue 234, how come his costume shrinks too? I am sure I don't know. But I did just finish playing Rum Tum Tugger in the Second National Touring Company of Cats. Anybody see it? Oh, 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 over here. Oh, boy. Oh, oh, me, 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 me. Yes, you, the masked boy. Do you think the ghost of Dirk Richter haunts the bordello where his bullet-riddled body was found? Dirk Richter was a beautiful man. Can't you little vultures leave him alone? Hello, and welcome to The Simpsons Countdown, the podcast where we go back to the beginning and watch all of The Simpsons to trace the creative evolution of the series and count down, finding the exact moment in which it began its inevitable decline. I'm Eric Santuan, and this week it is my sincere pleasure to welcome Clay McCormick, a comic book artist and also very prolific podcaster who co-hosts several shows over on the Penske Files. I'm a really big fan of his work, and it's great to sit down with him today. We'll be discussing the episode Three Men and a Comic Book, which originally aired in the U.S. on May 9th, 1991. In this episode, Bart becomes obsessed with purchasing a copy of Radioactive Man No. 1. When a horrifying part-time job yields meager results, he convinces Martin and Milhouse to pool their money to buy the comic, only to see it destroyed by their selfishness and inability to share. It's a very funny episode that dives very convincingly into the world of comic book fandom and also tells a really good story, which transcends its very specific cinematic and cultural references. Clay and I are about to break it all down, so without further ado, here we go. Hey, so welcome, Clay. So really good to have you here, man. I'm, I'm a really big fan of the stuff you do over on the Penske File, all those podcasts that you do with, with Wes over there. I'm a really big fan. I'm really happy that you agreed to come on for this oh, episode. Thank you. I, I'm, I'm really happy to be here. It, it only took me five or six years of podcasting and screaming from the rooftops the, how much of a Simpsons fan I am for someone to ask me to come on to a Simpsons podcast. So thank you for, thank you for uh, making my dreams come true. That's great. I'm, I'm so happy that I could do that for you. And yes, uh, in fact, I, I decided to ask you to come to do this particular episode because we're doing Three Men in a Comic Book, and I mm -hmm. thought that that might be a fun one to do specifically. And I thought we could start, before we get into the episode proper, I thought we could start by discussing our relationship with comic books. Sure. As, you know, so why don't you go? I'd, I'd like you to start off. I'd like to tell us a little bit about your relationship with comic books. Sure. Uh, well, I've been a comic book reader and fan for oh geez uh i don't know 25 years since i was like eight or so pretty much since i picked it up the first time it became uh a career goal to be one who who draws comic books and uh i've been doing that for i technically like 10 years but only really specifically focused in on it for like maybe uh six or seven at this point um that's that's as long as i've been doing comics exclusively and um yeah this this, this uh this episode um of the simpsons 
really resonated with me when I was a kid because back in the early 90s, there was no real comic book stuff. Uh, it was starting to Batman, the animated series was starting to come out. You had the X-Men stuff was starting to come out. But it was like there were no movies really except for Batman. So anything that was even tangentially related to comic books, I was all in on it. Like uh, I, I even watched a, a, a made-for-TV movie on Fox called uh, Wolverine with Antonio <laughs> Sabato Jr. in it just because on the, on the off chance that maybe it had something to do with the comics, which it absolutely did not. Um, yeah, so I, I, I've been a, a fan for a long time. Even though I've been drawing them, I still remain a fan. And yeah, what about yourself? Yeah, well, me, much, uh, much like yourself, ever since I was a kid, been a big, uh, really into comics. The story of how I got into them basically is because I grew up in New York City in Chinatown, lived in a loft, and so my parents would have a lot of roommates, mm -hmm. I suppose, to, to help pay for what even, even in the 80s would have been an expensive housing proposition in New York City. And one of the roommates that lived with us for about, I want to say, close to a year, was this guy named Craig. Mm -hmm. And he was very much into two things. He was very much into wrestling and comic books. And my dad sort of took him aside and said, look, it's cool. You can hang out with my kid. Do not get him into wrestling. I hate that <laughs> shit. But and whatever else, like, is fine, you know? Sure. And, and so, and, and he had this stack of, like, uh, one time he went on a trip, he was still living once, but he had like this stack of Marvel comics because he was a hardcore collector. So he'd buy two copies, one to read and one to bag. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So essentially he'd pass me like his stack of the reading ones, right. He'd just pass them on me. So he gave me this huge stack of, of comics. They're all Marvel comics. And that's where I really started reading. I mean, the one that I really gravitated towards was uh, Spider-Man because mm -hmm. Among that stack, he had like this would have been like 85, 86. I mean, he, he sure. had like Marvel Tales featuring Spider Man, where they were doing like the reprints of the 60s stories. They were reprinting them mm -hmm. in this thing called Marvel Tales. And so that's that, that's what I really started reading that. And then that came around the same time as that was concurrent with he had a whole bunch of it's Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider Man. Sure. And yeah. the, the Peter David, uh, Peter David Rich Buchler run. And I still remember the very first comic was one of those. And the cover had like, it was um, Spider-Man and Peter Parker. It was like this effigy of Spider-Man and Peter Parker, like burning on the cover. Right. Oh, and I was cool. like, ooh, okay. that's, that's like literally the first comic book I ever like read. And I looked at that one and I was like, well, this is cool. And I still remember one panel, um, the villain was the, this guy named Blaze. And I don't remember much else about it. Mm -hmm. But I do remember like the panel where Peter Parker actually discovers that like, effigy outside his office or outside his apartment or whatever and he's like blaze it has to be and somehow he knows that that <laughs> panel has stuck with me and it's something that i often even i'll just say like whenever i get like anxious about something i'll just go like blaze it has to be and somehow he knows <laughs> so that's how i started and then obviously it became a huge fan um was that uh, your first was that your first comic that one, that one specifically or what did you get like a, you got a whole stack of them it was a whole stack but that's like the yeah. first one that i read that one caught my eye first, and I started reading it. And of course, I knew I knew Spider-Man because of uh, you know I was watching the cartoon. Like you know, Spider-Man and his amazing friends was on Saturday mornings. Mm -hmm. Of course, I was familiar with the character, but I hadn't like read any of the comics. So that's where I really started to to really get into it. So he's always been like my favorite comic book superheroes. Do you still have it? 
Uh, not here. No, no. Uh, it's, it's stuck in a box somewhere, maybe. It's funny to me or interesting that uh, it, it seems to me generally comic books get passed down. Like the love of comic books becomes, you, it starts because you get introduced to it by someone else, whether it's a friend or a relative. Like I, I know my my cousin specifically is the one who got me into it, and I still have the first comic that he gave me, which I think he just gave me is like, yeah, 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 take this one, this one. I don't, I don't care about this <laughs> one. But it's like that was the one that everything kind of clicked for me on. Yeah, no, yeah, I, I hear you. It's, uh, that's and you're right. It is everything is kind of passed down because whether it's comic books and um, whatever it is, you're right. I mean, those kind of, but that kind of thing does tend to be passed down because my, my love of mad magazine was also mm-hmm. passed down. It was all like sure. my cousin, my older cousin gave me a whole stack of mad magazines, you know, just sort of mm-hmm. here you yeah. go. And that's how I discovered that that kind of happened concurrently with this. So it all kind of happened at the same time. And it's weird. And I, I didn't like get really into it, quote unquote, as a collector until sometime in the nineties, I started, I got when really everybody into, else did. Right. <laughs> yeah. Pretty basically. I mean like, and hang on. And when I tell you what it was, you'll probably be like, well, of course that's what it was. Uh-huh. Um, but what it is is that I was sort of like, ah, uh, you know, I, I picked up, uh, in a newsstand, I picked up a, uh, getting out of the subway, coming home from school. I picked up a copy of Superman, man of steel, number one, mm-hmm. which, which was, and I, they made this thing on the cover, like number one. And, from this point on, a new Superman every week. Because that's, you know, oh, that's sure. a, yeah. they have like the triangle numbers on the covers. And so at that point, I began to collect Superman comics. So for me, was it was that, like... Was that the uh, the John Byrne Superman? That Well, no, no, that's or, that's post that. John oh, Byrne had already okay. let, Yeah, by, by that point, uh, by that point, Dan Juergens was on. Oh, Superman. sure, sure. Okay, yeah. yeah. But it is basically the continuation of what... Uh, burn started mm-hmm. in 86 mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and i did have a few of those but i wasn't like collect like i had the man of steel miniseries and whatever but that's where i began to really collect like you know i got a few back issues then i then at that point i started to collect superman comics so even though i moved down here in like 92 then what ended up happening is i, I, I was i'm living here but i had like a a deal with the comic book shop that was near my uncle's office in queens mm-hmm. And so it was basically my uncle was picking them up for me and just like shipping them down to me every couple of months. So oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So it was great. I was able to keep up with it for a while. And then eventually for boring reasons, it stopped. But my, my point is that I had a whole bunch of like that, that was the hardcore collecting part. Mm. And, and yeah, so that's, yeah. Superman, you know, like I yeah. said, everybody got really, especially the whole death. Story oh line. yeah, absolutely. That was a big deal. Yeah. yeah. I, um, when when I discovered comic book stores, it blew my mind, because I I was only getting them for for a while uh, when I was a kid from newsstands and convenience stores, and so when I when I discovered wait there's a whole store dedicated to this that has more than just five issues of from varying months on a spinner rack that really kind of oh and I can also buy old ones this is this is amazing. And I, so that, that, that was sort of a, uh, a new era and that, that all, that all happened like in the boom in the nineties of the collecting boom and all that kind of stuff was when I got into it. Ironically, I was more of a collector when I was a kid than I was someone who like really focused on like the art and stuff, which, which I did. I, I, I think I was a more, more of a story person than I was an art person at that time. But like, you know, uh, my, 
given my eventual career path, you'd think I'd be a little bit more focused on the drawing. But at that time, as a kid, it was very much, I need to get a copy of X-Men number one. Oh, crap. They just killed Superman. I have to get a copy of that. What? It's fifty dollars. I don't have fifty dollars. You know, I, I I I empathize with the kids in this in this episode very very well. We can actually segue into it with that with what you just said. First of all, though, here's the thing. So this begins in a comic book convention, mm-hmm. right? And I need to say something right now. I've never been to one. Okay, sure. Uh, I had never, never been to one, one since until. Uh, until I was in college, actually. So I didn't, that was another thing where it's like, I knew they existed, kind of, but I, it was not really in my uh, orbit so much until it became part of my job. And I was like, oh, I didn't realize I could go to these and possibly get work. I thought it was just a bunch of guys in a basement trading comics with each other, you know, like, much like you see in this, in this episode. Right. Well, that was actually, to, to my point, the reason I brought that up is because would a place like Springfield... Mm-hmm even have a comic book convention? That yes. Appears... Okay. All like right. this one, absolutely. Um, because it, the the thing to, to understand is the comic book convention culture that exists now is very, very recent. Um, I went to the first New York Comic Con, which was in 2004, I think. Or, or yeah, it was either 2004, 2003. And uh, it was like more or less a, a sized up version of this. So in the, I was actually there a couple of years ago, um, uh, maybe 2018 for the 2018 New York Comic Con. And they had shifted the building around and stuff because they were doing, it's, it's at the Javits Center, this massive convention yeah. center. The, I, was, I was walking around and I went into Artist Alley where they, where they set up all the artists and they're doing everything. And I looked around and I realized the room that was Artist Alley, that was just Artist Alley, was the entirety of the convention the first year they did it. So this stuff has exploded. I went to the Boston Comic Con in 2009, was in the basement of a hotel. And it was like, I don't know, uh, I, I, I couldn't give you a square footage, but like you could, you could very easily see every wall in the place, you know? Sure. Um, and it was a lot more like this. And I and outside of the big cities, smaller cities, they still do conventions and they do a lot more like this, where it's a lot more it's a lot smaller. It's a lot more um, back issues and stuff like it's it's like four or five comic stores will get together and all bring their stuff. And that, that's sort of it. And maybe they'll have like a handful of, of talent, which they're not bringing in the big guys, but they've got some smaller you know, it's something I would be at, basically. Um, <laughs> so it, it spring, I could definitely see Springfield doing a show exactly like this, at least until they upgrade to uh, Bymon Sci-Fi Con. Is that what it is? The Bymon yeah. Sci-Fi Convention? Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, well, good point, actually, because something that we that has to be pointed out, this is 29 years ago. Yeah. I mean, this aired in 1991. Mm-hmm. And I guess in 1991, yeah, that's what a comic book convention was. Absolutely. Basically. Absolutely. It was, yeah. as you described it, you walk into, into a large basement and just there's a whole bunch of quote unquote nerds there. Mm-hmm. And that's what it is. That's all it is. Yep. Uh, yeah, that's something that I hadn't really considered because, of course, as you said, you know, comic book shops existed always. And, you know, the, there's a, like what, 
the Androids Dungeon, right? That's mm-hmm. the name of the comic book shop in Springfield. So of course I, I frequented them and much like uh, your, yourself, I mean, for me, it was a magical place. You know, Forbidden Planet in New York City was oh, a magical yeah. place. A magical place. They moved it, man. It's, it's no longer on the corner. Like when it was the corner location on that block, it was a corner location. Yeah. It was amazing. It was, it was amazing. It had two floors. It was amazing. They moved it a little further up. Like it's right next to the Strand Bookstore on the same block. It's right up next to the, to the Strand Bookstore. And it's just kind of, eh, you know, like it, it no longer has that magical quality. You walk in yeah. there and you've got the, the cases with the action figures and the big, like the $200 statues of Captain America or whatever are, are in the front. But then like you, it's just sort of, it just, I don't know. It, it's lost something for me. I mean, I love it. Still will support Forbidden Planet in any way, but That's... I got to say, I preferred it when it was in the corner location. I, you know, I went there a couple times when I was in school. I can't remember. Do you, I don't know when they moved. I feel like I was, I went there when they were on the corner. Cause I, I feel, I feel like it was on a, the corner lot when I went there, but I didn't realize they had moved it. I don't know when exactly it would, this would have had to have been at least cause, uh, the first time that I noticed that it was not in its corner location. Cause I actually, I, I had this moment of fear cause I, I was back in New York. I was, I was back in New York for the first time in a couple of years. Actually, I'd, I'd been away for about a couple of years. And so I was like, Oh, I gotta, I'm going to go to forbidden planet, just hang out for a bit. And so I, I get there and I get to the corner and, and I'm, and I don't see it. I see this thing and I go like, no, it can't be you know, <laughs> blaze. It has to be. And somehow he knows, but then I just look, Oh, it's further up. So, I mean, I'm going to assume it happened maybe a, a year or two before that, and this would have been 2012. Okay, so yeah, I was I, well out of school at that point. Yeah, yeah so. so so yeah, so I mean, it, maybe they moved somewhere around, maybe shortly before that. So sure, yeah, and you know, rent being what it is, I can imagine why they might have moved, but still, thankfully they still exist. That's important. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Tell you what, I show you something very special if you promise to put your grubby little hand behind your back and keep in there. Behold. Wow, radioactive man number one. No, another. I bet it's worth a million bucks. It is, my lad. But I'll let you have it for a hundred because you remind me of me. Oh, all I got is 30. Then you cannot have it. Okay, so this all centers around a copy of radioactive man number one mm-hmm. for a hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. And is that realistic? Radioactive man number one costs a hundred dollars mm-hmm. in 1991. Does that make sense? Do you think that that's what it would cost? Um... Well, I don't know what the market is at that point. <laughs> uh, no, uh, I'd have to check my my issue of Overstreet Price Guide from from 1992. Yeah, uh, I, I, yeah, I could see I could see it being like if it if we're, actually honestly it's probably kind of cheap, really. Yeah, not that's exactly what I was going to say. I mean, yeah, because like how much would a copy, okay, mint of like Action Comics number one go for oh, a thousand? Yeah. Thousands of dollars. No, okay, the, like, the, I think they sold one of those recently for over a million, I think. Right. At this point, yeah. Yeah, that's not this surprising is, at all. Radioactive Man seems closer to, like, the 60s era, so, like, an Incredible Hulk or a Spider-Man or something like that. And they've made a TV show out of it at that point. Or, sorry, serials. They haven't done the, haven't done a TV show. Uh... Yeah, it's probably still on the cheaper end. It's probably closer to like an Incredible Hulk or something like that. I I don't. A hundred bucks seems cheap. Let's put it that way. I don't know yeah, if those kids does. realize the deal they're actually getting. Yeah, I mean, because the, the thing is that I mean, obviously for a kid, a hundred dollars is, you know, might as well be mm-hmm. a million. But my point right, is that right. like, which is the but the one thing about it is though, I think it depends because there was a period where I thought of selling all my Superman comics. 
times. Mm -hmm. right? And I was, I was thinking of, ah, why don't I see if I get some money from selling these things? I ultimately didn't, and I'm glad I didn't. But, but, but to make a long story short, what happened was when I started looking into it, I realized that, yeah, I could sell them, but I wasn't going to get much for them. Sure. Sure. You know, and yeah. and then and I kind of like looked around and I talked to some people and they were like, well, because these had a lot of print. This had a lot of printing and yeah. they were they had a huge circulation. Death and Return of Superman. Famous story. And guess what? Everybody bought it. Oh, yeah. They printed. Oh, yeah. I don't know how many thousands of copies of the black bag edition. Yeah, sure. Everybody had that. And not only did they everybody had it because when it came out, it was such a big deal. A lot of people, collectors went and bought like 50 copies under the assumption this thing's going to be worth thousands of dollars and guess what no it's not because there are right. thousands of copies lying around everywhere yep. so yep. that that could also you know uh, well, like i'm guessing maybe maybe a mint mint of like the black bag edition of superman death of superman maybe that goes for a hundred dollars but like mint sealed sure maybe. Yeah. yeah yeah i mean i don't know if if uh if the if the comic was produced in conjunction with the serials and maybe if Laramie cigarettes was paying for the production <laughs> and they were sending out copies of the comic with every pack of carton of cigarettes you bought, there might be a lot of them out there. So yeah, maybe the price has been pushed down by, uh, by the number of copies that are available. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's number one. And, uh, and I was, uh, for me, the, the thing was that again, going back to the, uh, to the eighties, I was really into like secret wars. Oh yeah, and just love that. And for whatever reason, I had both of them. Like I had Secret Wars one and Secret Wars two, which I actually mm -hmm. prefer to Secret Wars one. And I and I had Secret Wars two, like beginning at number two. Mm -hmm. So it was my obsession to find like yeah. number one of those. So it's like I gotta find number one. And I remember the, the first time I found like number like Secret Wars number one. You know, the, on the cover you get the Beyonder. He's like yep. like crystalline and everything. And I was like, yes. And I but and this is, I mean, it wasn't at that point. It wasn't that old of a comic. It was maybe a year old, maybe two years old. And so it wasn't that expensive, but it was still expensive. I do remember that. It was it's still, sure. yeah. you know, still I had to save up a month's allowance to like buy that or whatever. I don't have many. Well, I so in the '90s during that that collector's boom, I realized that I was not. Um, the thing I cared about was not the collector price aspect. It was the story. Um, and it, which, which is another reason why I identified so well with these kids is because they're not buying the book to have an expensive comic book. They're buying it because it's the first issue and they want to read what happens in the first issue. Like exactly. when you're, you're talking about death and return of Superman. Um, I, I couldn't get my hands on the, the death of Superman issue uh, when they did the return, they did a similar book where they, it was instead of a black bag, it was a white bag. Yeah. And um, I, I got one of those probably because at that point the bubble had already burst and nobody was buying them. But I got <laughs> yeah. that. I got that one. And I think I sat on it for maybe. Let's be generous and say an hour and a half before I tore <laughs> it open. And I like I, I still have the bag because I was I, in the back of my head. I was like, well, I can still open it as long as I keep the bag. It'll probably still be worth it. So I like I it, it very quickly dawned on me that it's like, OK, it's not I, I'm not a collector because I, I, I I'm trying to keep these. I'm not putting them in a box somewhere so they uh, appreciate value. I, I just want them to read them. And um, <clears throat> what I liked about this is it it was very reminiscent of my feeling at the time uh, as far as comic books and comic book stories go, which was like, 
you know, what you were saying, you were you were desperate to find Secret Wars number one, right? And it always felt to me where it's like you get a certain chunk of this story, but then you realize, well, there's more to the story that I haven't read yet. And every time you find one of those, it's like finding one of the Dead Sea Scrolls or something. <laughs> right, no, like, exactly, exactly. I understand what happened in the second half of Executioner's Song, but I don't know how we got here. <laughs> So I have to go back and I have to find X, X Factor 28 or whatever it was so I can see exactly when Strife shows up from the future and shoots Professor X dressed as Cable and all this kind of crap. <laughs> yeah. Now, actually, for me, you know, what, you know like, uh, something that you, you'd know about this because it seems like you were into those comics. For me, uh, with X-Men, it was Life Death. Uh, life Death? I, yeah, I had Life Death 2, um, which, which actually took place several, several issues after Life Death 1. And I have never heard of Life Death. Well, this is from, I mean, that's the thing. I think it was a story called Life Death, which had to do with Storm. Okay. Okay. Storm and, God, whoever he was, whoever she was, like, dating at the time. Forge? Uh, maybe, but I don't know. I don't even know if it was, like, a, I don't even think it was, like, a hero. I think it was, like, just a guy. Okay. This guy with, like, a mustache and, like, short hair, like, kind of balding. Oh, I just looked it up. I, I recognize the cover. I have never read it, but I do recognize the cover. Okay, and that you life death two, or life death one? Uh, I the thing I, that came up for me was like a collection of them, so I assume it was both of them. But yeah, okay, right. oh yeah, I'm seeing yeah. it now. It is Forge, yeah. Okay, okay, so Forge. I mean, you, you you're more into it than I am because I, I was not. I I tried to get into X Men, and and at the time I remember thinking that was just way too convoluted for me, so I just stuck yes. with like Spider. I was just like, <laughs> yeah, this is a little bit too much for me. I couldn't take it. Like I X-Men, like, I, X-Men yeah. is and always has been very convoluted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just, like that's how it was. And uh, same with New Mutants. New Mutants had such mm-hmm. great covers, such great covers. So, so Bill Sikovich, uh, who did oh, yep. all those covers, yep. amazing covers. I was like, I would be like, yeah, this looks great. I start looking at, yeah, but this is, I can't, uh, no, I can't do it. I, can't, I, just, yeah, I couldn't do it, yeah. couldn't commit. Couldn't. Lots of history there. Yeah, I was too. I was. I don't know. Too. I was too dumb for it. I guess. That's Say, right. uh, yeah. Just to to jump off uh, one ahead. other thing about Secret Wars, the only comic that I do own that was one that I bought specifically because it was a well known kind of. I don't want to say expensive. It was pricier than I usually go. Is um, Secret Wars? I want to say number eight, number three, maybe whichever one where Spider Man gets the black costume. That's that was the one where I was like, okay, I've actually never read that story. Yeah. This is a fairly pricey book. It's probably a good one to have. So I grabbed that one. So that's the only one that I have that's like a uh, investment. And even there it was, I think it was like twenty bucks or something like that. It was. It was. I was not breaking the bank getting that one. Right. Sure. Yeah. Secret Wars. Marvel supervillains are coming. Secret Wars. Can the Marvel superheroes stop them? Here, Doctor Doom and the Doom Platoon. Magneto. Doctor Octopus. There, Captain America and the Champions of Freedom, Spider-Man and Wolverine, Secret Wars, the secret's out from Mattel. So yeah, they, they get the comic book and they, uh, well, first of all, it's funny, like, when they're reading it, so it, it gets dramatized in a rather funny way, which for me was very reminiscent of, like, the 60s Marvel cartoons. I don't know if you ever watched mm. any of them. Oh, yeah, you know, definitely. The yeah. ones I'm talking about. Mm-hmm with very rudimentary animation where it was essentially just comic book panels just sort of shot and with a very limited number of animation whether it's like iron man you know you can basically uh, like see them pulling the the cell across the camera to make spider-man swing across the city yep yep uh yeah so and i remember like the and actually those those continued to air 
down here in, in La Paz when I got here, like in the 90s, they'll still continue to air like on afternoon television. Oh, sure, blog. yeah. I was like, wow, this stuff's old. And, that's, <laughs> and so watching the, the, like the Radioactive Man thing, I was like, oh yeah, they're doing it in the style of the 60s Marvel comics. My pants. Caught on barbed wire. Good Lord, choke an A-bomb. Becoming radioactive. From this day forward, I shall call myself Radioactive Man. And maybe that's on purpose, since it since it seems like the his origin. Okay, so Radioactive Man basically is. If you uh, see if you follow my logic, he's mm -hmm. essentially like a combination of Superman and Batman because he's got like the powers, he flies, he's like super, super strength and all of that. Yeah. But he's, he's got like the, the kid sidekick, like Batman. So it's like mm -hmm. a combination of those two heroes. But his origin is basically a, a sort of take on the Hulk's origin. Right, right, yeah. So it yeah, kinda, I, it's a mishmash. I, I don't know if I would directly say he's a mix of Superman and Batman because the, the, the kid sidekick, was a prevalent trope uh, that existed back since the Captain America in the 40s. You know, Captain That's America true. had Bucky, uh, Human Torch had Toro, who was yeah. just a kid, Human Torch. So that's just like such so baked into the, the comic book culture of having a kid sidekick. However, they do definitely treat Radioactive Man more like Adam West than they do anything else. So he's, he's this weird mishmash of what like whatever comic book touchstone they need him to be uh in this one in this one he's in a he's in serials which is hilarious because this is if even if you take out the fact that the simpsons kind of exists out of time sure um this is 1992 and these kids are going crazy over serials from like the 40s which, right yeah like it's not even Adam West. They, I think they do an updated thing with uh, Radioactive Man where he's a little bit more Adam Westy later. But um, yeah, these these are kids who are who are excited about watching uh, black and white serials uh, sponsored by a cigarette company. Um, so I, I think yeah, and and you know they they say the thing about his unfortunate death at the bordello thing, which is a little bit George Reeves and a little bit the guy from Hogan's Heroes. Yeah, Bob Crane. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. So they kind of he's one of those characters that they they kind of he's the uh, uh, the filter for any comic book related stuff they need to do, which is one of my favorite things about the show is every everything has they have a through line for whatever joke they need to get to. Um, that's sort of a broad example of of this thing they're doing, which they can to to fine tune it however they need it to however they need it to work. Like Springfield itself, if you need a right. desert, drive ten minutes one way, you get a desert. If you need a yeah. if you need the uh, mountains, drive. If you need the the murder horn, drive ten minutes the other way, you get to the murder horn. So yeah, I I would say he's more of a He's more of a pastiche of just general comic stuff than I would say specifically Superman and Batman. But it is it is interesting to me that he does have a, a um, an incredible Hulk origin story. Yeah, yeah, and uh, that's got that great line. I would have thought being hit by an atomic bomb would have killed him. Now you know better. And it reminds me of um, there's a I'm pretty sure that it's in the Bendis run of Daredevil. Mm -hmm. Pretty I'm pretty sure it's Bendis. In like the early aughts, 
there was a, a run where I, I believe Kingpin is killed in this story. They pull a Caesar on him. But sure. anyway, but in but in that like story, at one point they discover Matt Murdock's origin. I mean, they discover that Matt Murdock is Daredevil, mm-hmm. and the guy says something like. You know what would happen to me if I got hit in the face with a radioactive isotope? I'd get leukemia and die. Yeah. Uh, not, not, I, don't, I don't know if this is too sacrilegious to say on this show, but one of my favorite jokes on Family Guy is uh, there's some catastrophe happening. So Mayor Adam West decides that the only way he can stop it is to get superpowers. So he goes to a toxic waste dump and rolls around <laughs> in a toxic waste. And then they hard cut to him at the doctor. And the doctor says, Mr. West, I'm afraid you have lymphoma. <laughs> right now uh it's not sacrilegious i have i have no i like family guy just fine i have no problem with family guy to be honest so particularly the early like the, yes, the earlier yeah. seasons the better it is but yeah I, I, i'm not i'm not a hater but anyway yeah that's that is very funny and you're right they're they're doing a lift actually the idea of kids being really excited for watching like some old serial it's not because I do remember Batmania, you know, when 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 the 89 Batman movie came out, mm. I, like many, was obsessed with Batman. Sure. So you better believe, I mean, I, I, they came out with a bunch of books that were collecting a whole bunch of stories, you know, like the, the greatest Batman stories ever told, the greatest Joker stories ever told. I bought mm-hmm. those books. And, but I was like, I wanted to get my hands on everything. You know, I got like the the um, DC archives of like the first oh, yeah. issues of like Detective Comics and then... So obviously, around that same time, if you went to video stores, they were already they were really pimping those like Batman serials from like yeah. nineteen oh, okay. sure. thirty or whenever it was. And I was like, "Yeah, I'll watch this," you know. And I'm pretty sure that some people would have felt the same way with Superman, also watching the old like Kirk Allen like nineteen thirties Superman serial. I think when you get really into something, you just you want to consume as much of it as you can. Oh, definitely. Like, that, yeah. like they're really tepid. So when you're a kid and you get obsessed with that and you're like, yeah, you'll watch the, the shitty ass um, 1930s Batman serial just because you're obsessed with the Tim Burton movie. Right. So right. It, it makes sense. It, like that, that doesn't seem that far fetched. And clearly they're, they're not, I mean, you know, Bart's res- like Bart doesn't have, he's irreverent enough to not really give a shit to bring up the, 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 tra- the tragic history of the actor. Right, and right. Basically, caused the guy to have a meltdown on stage, which is also a very funny scene. I like that he and Milhouse are are, are two very different types of fans, and I, I I would identify a lot more with Bart than Milhouse. Where Milhouse shows up and starts asking the magic xylophone questions about the comic, whereas Bart is more interested in the uh, seamy behind the scenes elements of what actually happened to the guy. <laughs> yeah, no, so, right. They're the realists, right? Like, um, yeah, because you have the ones who actually, who will actually point blank ask William Shatner about like how many decks does the Enterprise have, or like right, or just like right. why why did you meet on deck thirty when like clearly you know the the blueprints show that there is no deck thirty or whatever right, it is, right? Yeah. where it's like, dude, it's a fucking TV show. But <laughs> like when you um, left your quarters for the last time. And you, you opened up your safe. Um, what was the combination? He had a life, will you, Pete? I mean, look at you. Look at the way you're dressed. You, 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 you've turned an enjoyable little job that I did as a lark for a few years into a colossal waste of time. All right. Well, getting back into the, the episode, I love the Mrs. Glick subplot. Mm, yeah. The way that's presented. It's hilarious. Cloris Leachman is really funny. All of those scenes are just extremely, extremely funny. The whole thing is very funny. Yeah, I um, 
I don't think I ever realized that was Cloris Leachman. Because uh, usually when when I've gone back and watched the show, there's a lot of voices that I didn't know at the time when I was a kid that I recognize now later, sure. being more familiar with their their work and different stuff. Um, but yeah, Cloris Leachman is just like a chameleon. Uh, yeah. I get maybe it's because in my head she just sounds like Frau Blucher from uh, Young Frankenstein, which is a yeah. very different voice than this one. Yeah, that that stuff. What the thing that I I found surprising about this episode, having been so long since I watched it, was uh, the comic book stuff doesn't is like the last eight minutes of the show. It's like the last third of the show. Yeah, and there's a big portion dedicated to the Mrs. Glick stuff, and it's um, it's it's an interesting structure, uh, especially because later on they get into more like a plot and b plot type stuff, where this is basically one story, kind of told in three separate parts. And the Mrs. the Mrs. Glick stuff is very. Uh, I I don't know if you ever had a job like that, but I I never had a job like that where I was paid so little. Um, or at least not God, that no. little anyway. Uh, but I, I do identify he, he gets he gets a little bit probably too intense with her at the end, but the fact yeah. that she she brushes it off pretty easily makes it uh, makes it okay. Yeah. No, I mean it's a you, you almost feel kind of sorry for her because like, come on, she's a little old lady. She doesn't know anything. Right. You don't have, yeah. you don't have to be that mean part. It's like I listened to uh to one of your, one of your previous episodes and um you know you were you were talking about saying how you're you're looking for the moment where the Simpsons kind of starts to drop off. Sure. And for me, it's always been when their references and stories become too current and they start making a lot more very, very modern references and having like more uh, celebrities on as themselves and stuff like that. And where it really lives for some reason, the core of the show is in episodes like this where they can just make all of these weird old references that only they're going to understand but works for the story that they're telling because Mrs. Glick is just like an excuse for them to go off and come up with as many old-timey things as they can think of whether it's like you know what does she offer him like a barley soda or something like that uh, bar barley pop barley, barley pop. pop yeah and she tells him she tells him to spend his 50 cents on penny whistles and moon pies yeah yeah exactly <laughs> yeah have some ribbon candy. Boys love candy. No, thanks. Boys love candy. Yeah, yeah. like that That sort of weird... It's it's weird because when they date the show that way, it makes it more timeless than exactly. when they start doing stuff like... Even though I do love this episode because it's a crossover with my favorite television show, The Prisoner, uh, I always thought it was weird, the episode where Homer gets a computer. And like they go online for the first time, or one of them gets a cell phone, and it's like ah, I don't know. It just feels like it. It feels like it. The show lives so much in that more like uh, throwback, timeless era that to see them go so modern always felt like like uh, it didn't feel on brand to me. Well, actually, you know what? That's a very good point, and we can talk about this for a minute. I think because you're right, it's not. See, the way that I've been contextualizing it in my head is because, I mean, I don't actually know. I'm trying to find that, mm, that, that yeah. drop-off point. But I'm suspecting that it's going to happen towards the end of the 90s, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in terms of the seasons or whatever yeah. season that is, right? And so, and I think that is, might be because of what you're saying. Because I think when they were a 90s time capsule, 
And when the writers who were doing the show were boomers, were people like who were reflecting on their own childhoods. Mm. And so, and they were making references to stuff that they're going to understand. But it has that timeless quality because it's still, as you're saying, the story works regardless. Because let's look at this. I mean, the, the entire third act of this is essentially a parody of the treasure of the Sierra Madre. Mm -hmm. And it has references to like Saboteur, the Hitchcock right. film. Mm -hmm. And it has a whole bunch of stuff like that, which, I mean, let's be honest, somebody today watching that under the age of 40, under the age of 35, let's be generous, under the age of 35, will just be like, what, you know, they're not going to know what that is. They'll enjoy right. it just as a story. And they might assume it's a reference to something, but they're not going to understand what that is because they probably have never even watched Treasure of the Sierra Mountain. So, like, I'll tell you, you have no idea how many jokes from The Simpsons I didn't get all came into focus the first time I watched Citizen Kane. You know? Oh, well, yeah, there, there you go. Yes. Where, like, I, I believe that they have, like, uh, I don't, I think I read this somewhere that by now, you know, after so many episodes and so many things, you could literally reconstruct the entire. Citizen Kane film, yeah, just using yeah. shots from The Simpsons. I would watch that movie in a heartbeat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I just it would be interesting. I think you could clearly like either do that or like a very summarized version of it. But they yeah. have pretty much lifted so much from it that it's amazing. But that's the thing. Like you're right. I think that I guess when it became a current thing, I guess it's because the writers changed. I'm going to assume mm. that that's what it is. So that it's the writers reflecting on their own stuff. It's no longer the boomers. Then it's Gen Xers, and then. It's millennials sure. who are writing the show. Yeah. And when they're writing the show, they're not looking to, you know, 1950s movies for inspiration. Right. They right. didn't grow up with that. That doesn't have any, you know, they're in the now. They're in the now. So they're all about being edgy and in the now. And Like, I don't want this to sound like I'm bashing millennials. That's not what I'm doing. But I'm just saying that, that that's what, like, that's what happened. Yeah, I, I found it interesting because I was, I was watching this and it occurred to me there's only one joke in this episode that I don't think that I think feels really dated. I think the rest of the show works on its own very well. Um, and the humor in the show, I think, is is fairly universal. <clears throat> the only joke that doesn't work anymore is the Wonder Years joke. Because I barely get that joke. And I, because I, I was young enough to have watched, like, the last two seasons of the Wonder Years. And it was still in the zeitgeist at that time. Sure. Um, but, like... Anybody who anybody under 30, I doubt, is going to get that, you know, that's true. Yeah, I, I had the same thought because when that when it went to that, I go like, right, this is Wonder Years. And plus, it's 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 Daniel Stern. Right. And right. I believe I, I believe his brother is one of the writers. Yep. He's one of the writers on The Simpsons. So he like made sure that that they got the, you know, the idiom right. Like, just got it yes. Right. Yes. And so it's fine. It's it's a perfect parody. Get a job. Were they serious? I didn't realize it at the time, but a little piece of my childhood had slipped away forever. Bart, what are you staring at? Uh, nothing. To That's an example of them doing something that at that time would have been current. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You know, there was like, oh, the Wonder Years is kind of big right now. So this is a reference that everybody who's watching this is going to get. And yes, exactly. they would have. You know, and now, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you're right. It's not, I don't know how, I, I don't know what kind of a dent the Wonder Years made in pop culture. It's not like making a Star Trek reference where people right. get what that is. You know, I think yeah. the Wonder Years is a lot more niche. I think the um, the brilliance of the show when it comes to that stuff is that they manage to to make the references uh, their own joke or or scene. So the joke isn't 
oh, wink, wink, this is like Saboteur. Oh, wink, wink, isn't this just like the Sierra, uh, Treasure of the Sierra Madre? Or, oh, wink, wink, isn't this just like uh, Citizen Kane? They right. use it to, to its own effect in the show. So when you get to, like, the monorail episode and they're doing a riff on the Music Man, you're not going like, oh, hell yeah, Music Man. Like, it's its own thing. It lives in its own yep. space. And it's yeah. it's not just a reference. It's a something that's been synthesized into into its own own joke and own thing. Right. No, exactly. It's not funny because of the reference. Exactly. Yeah. Which is what when you when you do that badly, that's what happens. Right. Like the reference is the joke. But if the reference is the joke, then it's not going to work. Yeah. You know, and even even the Wonder yeah. Years joke. I mean, even if you don't know what it is, I think it's still pretty funny. But it's as far as <laughs> as far as like direct references that's the one that they really make that i don't think lands anymore you're right because like in that in that that third act the treehouse is full of gags that have nothing to do with treasure of the sierra madre just right. great lines just stuff like you know you're going crazy bart i'm telling your mom hey martin tell them what we do with squealers i don't know is it worse than what you do with people that have to go to the bathroom i my favorite bit yeah. of that sequence is when uh as the as bart's getting paranoid about who's going to take the comic when Martin lays out a very reasonable plan at every stage of the of the discussion. It was like, well, what about odd? What about zero? And he's like, well, in the unlikely case that a zero shows up, here's exactly what we'll do. And then it, and and then they're like, oh, well, that's yeah. But I don't know about you anyway. But uh, <laughs> yeah. Martin's yeah. plan is is very reasonable and makes a lot of sense. It is very reasonable. The only problem is that that was Saturday. So he's yes. like, well, this being yeah. Saturday, I'll just take my comic and go. Nice try. Hey there, my podcast listeners, all seven or eight of you, please listen up. Do you like The X-Files? Well, then you might be interested in my new podcast, Discovering The X-Files, in which I, a confessed newbie, go through the entire series as longtime fans walk me through it. If you're a fan, here's a good opportunity for you to revisit the series and follow along with me. If you're a newbie like me, then why not jump in and join me on this voyage of discovery? Either way, it's a good talk and a good time. So check out Discovering the X-Files, posting twice a week, Mondays and Fridays, on Anchor FM, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other podcast platforms, or on the Eric Antoine Network on YouTube. Hope to see you there. And now back to The Simpsons Countdown. Yeah, uh, let, let's talk for a second about Millhouse. This is something sure. that might relate more. This is something you might be more familiar with than I would be, because I'm not really a baseball guy. Are you? Are you into baseball at all? Um, are you a Sox fan? I'm more of a Bruins fan, more of a hockey fan. Um, okay. I I have living in Boston. I I am a fan of of all the sports, uh, <laughs> but I probably watch baseball the least. I fluctuate. So when I was when I was younger, I think I watched more baseball. I went through a brief basketball phase, you know, the past 20 years has been all, all football. You can't not watch it. And, uh, but, but I've always been more of a hockey fan in general. All right. Yeah. I mean, I'm not really, I don't, I only take an interest if it's a subway series. Sure. Yeah. Um, and I, and even then it's kind of a passing interest. Mm -hmm. I don't, I'm not really invested one way or the other, but the, the baseball card that Milhouse wants, mm -hmm. you know, what he's trying, is that a real thing? I mean, I know he's a real player, right? But I, yes, 
apparently that is a real card i was i was listening to a bit of the commentary on the dvd and uh it during that scene one of the writers said that that was a real baseball card yes and probably the writer himself must have been uh obsessed with it oh i'm sure yeah the with the big sideburns like they make a real point like they they make so that there's another reference that again who's really going to be into that like right like who's going to know but even then i think who was going to know yeah. But it works because it doesn't really matter. You know, it's not about the joke is not that the joke is just that that's what Milhouse wants. Right. And so at the end, when he's about to, quote unquote, die, he's like, I didn't even want the comic. You right. know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. so like that whole thing. Yeah, it could right. have been anybody. And, it could have been a made up yeah. player. It could have been a made up card. It could have been, you know, Alf Pogs. I don't know. It could have been anything. All right. Cool. So is there anything else that we have not brought up that you'd like to point out? Well, I was just thinking, I I find this era of The Simpsons really interesting. Um, Well, first of all, because you see uh, Bartman makes an appearance at the beginning of this, and Bartman was everywhere outside of the show, but I didn't realize until I looked it up, this is the only time Bartman shows up on the show. I should say the first time, the next time is not for 16 years later. (laughs) And it's... It's just an interesting era to think about because this is like right in the pocket of when this show really blew up. I don't think Michael Jackson is season three, right? Yes. Yeah. He opened season three. Yeah. So that's kind of like, I think the Michael Jackson episode is like the peak of the original Simpsons boom. And it's easy to forget how big this show was, how quickly, and then how much of that stuff sort of dissipated off because in for my money anyway you don't really get to see the best of this show until like season 4 and on like season 4 through 8 are like perfect seasons of television they're unbelievable but by that point they're not doing the crank call thing anymore they're not doing uh i mean bartman like i said he showed up once even though he's in video games and you can buy toys and stuff it's it's yeah. a very passing reference and this is just a, it's an interesting era of the show because it's very much still the Bart Simpson show and it hasn't switched over to the Homer Simpson show featuring the rest of Homer's family. Exactly. Um, I, so I, I was, I was wondering what your thoughts about this era are in general, as you've been making your way through. Cause I bless you. You watched the whole first, I haven't watched the first season of the Simpsons probably in, since it was on. Cause I, I, I never thought it was very good. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, uh, my marker has always been like two through 10 are like the the sweet spot. Um, but what, what are your, sorry if you've talked about this in previous shows, but I'm just curious what your, what your views are, have been up to this point. Okay. Well, actually, because, you know, it's not like I've talked about this in detail Uh, and, you know, we, we are, we are sort of wrapping up the second season. We've got another episode to go, but we're pretty much done. Uh, and so it's a good time to sort of reflect on it. And I think I can say, yes, um, you see the growing pains, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, they're very clear. And when you watch like the first season, which is very rough, mm. extremely rough, I try watching it now. And it's, I was like, wow. Yeah, this was not, I know, can't it, even, it, what are the big, the only episodes I can remember from the first season are the one where, uh, the first Albert Brooks episode with Marge in the bowling teacher. Sure. And uh, the one with the babysitter who's the, the, the crazy ki- killer or something. 
And I can't remember anything else from the first season of the show. Are there any like standouts from the first season that I'm that I can't remember? Um, I want. I mean, I think that Krusty gets busted. The, oh, the introduction yes. of SciShow Pop. That's course, a pretty good episode. Course, that's actually. Yes. That, I would say that's probably the best episode of the first season in terms yeah. of like, the way it's written, in terms of its structure. It it has it has more in common with later Simpsons than the first season as a whole. Sure. But yeah, it's definitely very rough. If that's where they'd stayed, if they'd stayed in that, it wouldn't have worked. They needed to up the ante a bit, mm -hmm. which they did in the second season. And so the interesting thing is that in the second season, you really do see that development. And like a few um, a few episodes ago, I came up with a bit of a theory because I it's the in the episode about. Bart the Daredevil, when he jumps, you know, when, when he becomes a, when he's doing stunts on his skateboard. Yep. So I came up with a theory about the opposite of jumping the shark is mm -hmm. jumping the gorge. Okay. Because, I like that. You know, essentially, like, I think from that point on, you begin to see a bit of an uptick. Mm. It's still an up and down thing, but you still basically, it starts to get a lot better almost immediately from that point on. The, the episodes really start to, they become more notable. You get things like this one that we just watched. You get, and I do, and I agree with you. I, I think like what, because I'm, I'm watching it at a different pace. Like I'm, I'm already like myself as of this recording, I'm already up to like season five, just on my oh, okay. own, just, just sure. watching okay. it, enjoying it. Right. Just for my, for my own pleasure. And, and you do see that like season three, it, it gets even better. You know, it's like they, it's, it's a constant refinement. Mm. And what, and what you pointed out is something that I, that has been on my mind too. The, in the first two seasons and even in part of the third, there's a lot of the running gags, you know, like what you just pointed out about the whole, the, you know, prank calling Mo. Mm. And, uh, that's one of the things or little, little, little things that they had, which I'm going to say probably what ended up happening is that those things, those running gags were replaced with other running gags. Sure. definitely. I guess that's all that happened. You know, I, I guess, you know, cause I know that later on like disco stew and like whatever yes, else, yes. I, mean, I know that stuff, basically what ended up happening is some things were phased out as the writers changed and other things took their place. But it was funny to me cause you're right. I mean, the, the prank calls were a thing for a bunch of seasons, but then eventually it was like, that's over. We're done. Yeah. With and it, I, it, and that was so ubiquitous to the show. Like it was right. like, that was the thing that the, sh it, the Simpsons was like, Oh yeah, they prank call Mo and see more butts and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, like that was like one of the, the top three things you'd mention about the show if you were talking about it. And then they, it was just gone and it was just, it was replaced by this other stuff that, that, uh, like, Disco, yeah, disco stew is not something that is that had the same cross cultural impact as the as <laughs> calling Mo's the prank calling Mo's did. But I I totally see your point. Yeah, right. No, there's that, and 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 you've just brought up. You're right. Bartman appears here, and what I'm wondering because I I haven't seen any details about this anywhere is because I'm assuming that by the time that happened, Bartman already had existed, like on a T-shirt or. Sure. In some way, in some form, the idea of Bartman had existed, but I guess they just put it into the show as a gag at that point. I, I don't think, you know, he wasn't a character. He was just a, a you know, so a meme. Yeah, I just looked it up very quickly. The song "Do the Bartman" uh, was on the Simpsons Sing the Blues album, which was from 1990. So yes. that would have been before this aired. So that phrase already yes. existed. So yeah, it must it must have just been like a uh, lateral move from the phrase turning it into a, a literal thing. Yeah. 
Right. Well, they just said, and then, and then I guess since that was by that point, they were already in the pop culture vernacular. Mm. So the writers were like, ah, let's do this. Fuck it. It'll be a fun little <laughs> gag, you know, whatever. It's just funny. You know, so it's like, I'm Bartman. Get Never a video game out of it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. Get a, get a, get a video game. Get one of the dreadful video games out of it. Cause like yeah. the Simpsons games are so bad. Like I, I don't understand why, like it's, in the history of licensed video games, it's it's probably like the ratio of like how big the property is to how bad the game is. It's like yeah. it's incredible. They're terrible games, every single one of them. I, like I don't understand how that happened. Great pinball machine though. The bad video games, but the pinball machine is fantastic. I love the pinball oh, machine. Yeah, that's fine. And okay, I'll you know what? I'll go to bat for the arcade game. The arcade game's fun. Oh, right. Yeah, the arcade yeah. game. That one at least is fun. Like, I yeah. I had uh, the first Simpsons one on NES where it's you're just Bart, like, walking around the town throwing cherry bombs at people and, and Bart versus the Martians. I forget what it was called. Oh, the Space Mutants. Yes. Yes, that's, there uh, you go. Space I could, never get, I could never get past level two. I hate that game. Yeah, it sucks. Uh, it's terrible. It was... I never played... What's the... Is it Simpsons the driving game? I can't remember what the name of it was. Oh, uh, Hit and Run? Hit and Run, yeah. Was that, that a game? I don't remember that. That, that came out for the PlayStation 2. That was like a GTA parody. That one was actually pretty good. I yeah. have to, like, I'll, I'll admit that. That was actually pretty good because it's, you know, it's a GTA thing. So, you know, you get to drive around. It's open world. You do missions. Sure, sure. And that, yeah, okay. So, so every game except the arcade game and Simpsons Hit and Run, which I read somewhere, I think they're remastering. So Ooh. you might you might get a chance to check it out. You know, you know what I had that I I actually I loved. It seemed like a lot of work for not a lot of payoff once you got it. But it was, it was a CD-ROM back you know back when that was a thing, and it was just a digital digital three D, uh, explorable version of of Springfield, and it you didn't really do anything except like walk the streets of so it's like first person it's like baby basically like google maps like okay google map the street view on google maps yeah i hear but, you yeah okay but for springfield so you could go down all the different streets and you could go to moe's and you could go to the quickie mart and stuff i think that's all you could do i don't know if, i don't remember how much interaction there was but i actually really enjoyed it just because you got to like experience that world in a 3d sense as opposed to a 2d sense and you kind of just get to spend time there but uh as far as like a video game it was not very good yeah no i mean it's exactly it's like a fun thing for a fan i mean i do remember like a couple of years ago i went to uh to universal studios in orlando oh yep and you know and, and that had been my first time there in many many years and the the back to the future ride has been replaced by the simpsons right yep. Yep. And I had heard about that before I went. And so I was a little bit disappointed, though. Not by the ride. The ride's a lot of fun. But uh, the um, I was expecting something better. I was expecting, like, their recreation of Springfield, quote-unquote, to be a little bit more extensive. Like, I thought mm. they would have put more into it. But yeah. it really is nothing. It's like you have, like, a just a store there. And then, like, I mean, there's, there's really very little. And I thought at least, you know, you'd get to see Moe's Tavern. or. And I'm surprised that that doesn't exist somewhere. Well, you know, that, so have you... No, have you not been there? Have you was this before? Because they did that eventually. Like if you go there now, they've built Moe's Tavern and they've built um, the Quickie Mart, and uh, they have a, a Duff Duff Brewery area, and so they they had yeah. I went down there um, two years ago, 
And okay. it's awesome. You go into Moe's and it's decked out exactly like Moe's and they have in a, Orlando. Uh, yes, in Orlando. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. So then I, I guess this isn't. Yeah. When I went, they still hadn't finished that or, or whatever. Yeah. And if you go, uh, you can go through Moe's into like a um, cafeteria area, and all of the different restaurants in the cafeteria are different restaurants from the show. So like they have like the Frying Dutchman and uh, Krusty Burger. And all that kind of stuff. So they they did. I think it's been I think it's been that way for ten years, maybe at this point. Uh, maybe not that long. Maybe a little bit less than that. But uh, yeah, it was probably it was less cool. because uh, when I because when I went, unless I just didn't see that stuff, unless I somehow yeah, I, don't know. I mean, because I went with my daughter and I was like really focused on you know oh she sure was, sure yeah she, she was she was like twelve at the time, and so uh, you know I maybe I just didn't notice it. You yeah. know, because yeah. we, we just went to the ride and we were only there for a day. Oh, so sure, sure. You know, yeah. And so it was just like, okay, well, you know, at least we get the ride. All right, fine, let's do the ride. So I, it's possible that that stuff was there. And then me, like a jackass, I actually just missed all of that. <laughs> so yeah, this this was a great talk, man. I, I'm I'm really I'm really glad we sat down and talked about this. This was this is a lot of fun. Oh, thanks for having me. I really really enjoyed it. Yeah, no, it was, it was a real pleasure. And, and I'd like to uh, give you an opportunity now. Please go ahead and plug whatever you want to plug, man. Sure. Well, I, uh, I have a boatload of other shows that I do. Uh, I, I do a show called The Penske File with uh, my friend Wes, where we talk about Star Trek. Uh, we are currently in, in the middle of season two of Star Trek Enterprise, as well as recovering Lower Decks, which is the new cartoon that they've been doing. I also do a show about uh, another cartoon show called uh, The Badass Podcast, where I talk about Batman the Animated Series with DC Comics artist Sean Murphy. And I just started a new a new one, well, it's, I guess it's been a little while at this point, called The Rotten Horror Picture Show, where myself and my co-host Amanda talk about the Rotten Tomatoes 200 Best Horror Movies of All Time list. It's a very contentious list because uh, it's based on like an algorithm. So it's some of the, yeah. the choices oh, yeah. are, are not exactly uh, what you would think they would be. Um, but aside from that, yeah, I, um, I have a book coming out next year called Bloody Hell, which is uh, I ran a Kickstarter for it last year and I've been working on it since. It's a, it's a graphic novel about five mystically powered Vikings who've been in prison for a thousand years and they get set loose when their prison struck by an artillery shell from World War One, and I'm almost done with that. Uh, so that should be out next year. And uh, yeah, I've. You can find me on Twitter at Dead Meat Comic and on Instagram at C McCormick, uh, C M C C O R M A C K four one four. That's great, man. Uh, the, that stuff, all that stuff, is great. As I said at the at the at the top, I'm a big fan of the podcasts that you do. Oh, thank you. I appreciate thing. it. So, I'm gonna be uh, I'm gonna be providing links for all of this stuff in the episode description. Uh, so it really has been a pleasure. So that's it for this week's installment of the Simpsons Countdown. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this, please give us a like. If you haven't yet, go ahead and subscribe. This podcast is available on Apple, Spotify, Anchor FM, and other podcasting platforms. A brief review might actually help boost the podcast's profile, so by all means, feel free. And if it isn't too much trouble, please do share this with all your friends on social media. I would also like to take this opportunity to plug The Penske File, which offers a cornucopia of film, TV, and music-related podcasts, featuring this week's guest, Clay McCormick, and another great dude named Wes Teasdale. 
Visit thepenskefile.com to access all of their stuff directly, whether it's their excellent Star Trek podcast or their movie series, Real Ripe, Real Rotten, or Clay's Rotten Horror Picture Show, and more. It's all great stuff, I promise you. And please check out Clay's work. It's a post-apocalyptic comic series put out by Oni Press called Redline. That's out already. Keep your eye out for the aforementioned Bloody Hell coming soon. Follow him on Twitter or Instagram, and in any case, I will be providing helpful links in the episode description. I'm Eric Santoine. I'll be back next Thursday evening to talk about Blood Feud, in which Bart gives his blood to save Mr. Burns, and the Simpsons get nothing for their trouble. Until Mr. Burns has a change of heart and gets them... Well, he gets them something. Let's leave it at that. Mike Flynn will be here to talk about that one and help me close out the second season of the series and this podcast. And I hope you'll join us. Until then, stay safe out there. Continue observing your biosafety and social distancing protocols because whether your area is opening up or not, we are not quite through this thing and we need everyone to do their part, keeping themselves and everyone else healthy. And we'll get through this in due time. Thank you for listening. See you next week. When Captain America throws his mighty shield, all those who chose to oppose his shield must yield. Then he's led to a fight and a duel. Shh.